0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome again to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad you're here with us this morning. Could you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel? The book of Ezekiel, it's one of the big prophetic books in the middle of your Old Testament. So go ahead and turn with me to Ezekiel. And we're going to begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Ezekiel chapter 33. So let's begin by reading that text. Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 7 through 11. We're going to read this morning Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 7 through 11. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel, Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, surely our transgressions and sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we study it this morning, Lord, our our desire is to understand it and apply it to our lives, that we might not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. So Lord, we ask that you would uh, give us understanding in our hearts, in our minds, Lord, that we might live for your glory, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. It's been said, if you speak to hurting people, you will never lack an audience. If you speak to hurting people, you will never lack an audience. Today, we're gonna meet a man named Ezekiel, And Ezekiel was a hurting person who was called to minister to other hurting people. Ezekiel suffered great tragedies in his life, and he lived amongst a people who were suffering in major ways. They were not having their best life at this moment. And and honestly, things were not going to get better, right? For them in their life, in their lifetime, things were not going to improve. Ezekiel was a hurting man called to minister to hurting people. In our study today, what we're going to see is where did Ezekiel find the strength to go on in the face of hardship? And where did he get the motivation to fulfill God's purpose for his life? Because here's the deal, guys. We need those same things ourselves. We need strength to go on in the face of hardship. And we need motivation to carry out God's purpose and will and plans for our lives. And what we're going to see is that the same sources that Ezekiel drew on, are available for us as well in Christ. The title of today's message is A Beacon of Hope. And what we're gonna see is this, the strength to persevere in the face of hardship and the motivation to fulfill God's purpose and calling on your life. They come from three things that we see in Ezekiel's life. Number one, a glimpse of God's glory, a glimpse of God's glory. Number two, a warning of what is at stake. And number three, a vision of life out of death. So that's what we're going to see. That's where Ezekiel got his strength, his motivation, and those same things are for us as well. In James chapter 5, verse 10, James tells us to remember the prophets and look to them as examples of perseverance in the face of suffering. Nobody exemplifies that perhaps more than Ezekiel. But what's interesting about what James says there is he's encouraging us, when we think about the prophets, don't just think about the prophecies that they spoke or the things that they wrote, but think about who they were and how they lived, who they were as people and how they lived out lives of faith and walking with God. And he says, because they are examples for us as we seek to walk with God today. And so for the past few weeks, we've been doing a series called Remember the Prophets. And in this series, what we've been doing is, we've been going chronologically through the prophets, and we've been taking what you might call a biographical look at the lives of the different prophets. Today, we come to the prophet Ezekiel. So we're just going to jump right into it. Okay, guys? In chapter one, verse one, it says this, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal, and the, land, or, and the hand of the Lord was upon him. Here in these opening verses, we learn a lot about who Ezekiel was and what was going on at this time. It says that it was in the 30th year. What does that mean? Well, it means this was actually his age at the time, when he was 30 years old. Now, why does that matter? It actually matters a lot because you'll notice it said in verse 3 that Ezekiel, it called him Ezekiel the priest. Okay, the way it worked with priests is, You would be trained to be a priest, but you would only step into priestly ministry when you turned 30 years old. That's when you could begin serving as a priest. Now, to become a priest, you couldn't just go to priest school, right? Like, you couldn't just sign up and be like, hey, I wanna be a priest for my life and go to priest school and become a priest. No, you had to be born into a priestly family. You had to be the son of a priest, right? And so Ezekiel was that, except there's a a problem here. Here's the problem. He turns 30 years old, but he's unable to begin his priestly ministry. He's unable to begin serving as a priest. Why? Here's why, because in order to minister as a priest, you had to serve in the temple, which was in Jerusalem, but Ezekiel is not in Jerusalem. He's 1,700 miles away from Jerusalem in a place called Babylon, and he's a captive. He's in exile. He's being held. He's been taken away from his home. He's cut off from the temple. Ezekiel is in exile. Now what we've been seeing as we move through the prophets chronologically, we've seen how God warned the people of Israel and spoke to the people of Israel for decades through prophets, that if they continued going the way they were going and doing the things they were doing, which by the way, was rampant corruption and gross immorality and, and spiritual defilement. He said, "If you keep going this way, you're going. You can't. It's going to wreck you. It's going to ruin you. you're hurting other people. And God says, "I will literally do whatever it takes." to make you stop doing these things, and to get you to turn back to me in your hearts, even if it means allowing you to experience hardship and difficulty in your life. Friends, you know that that same principle applies in our lives, doesn't it? Maybe you've experienced that yourself before. Sometimes it takes a crisis in your life to give you the wake-up call that you need and to get you praying again, to get you seeking the Lord again, to get you to stop the destructive things that you've been doing. And that was the case here with Israel and Judah. God spoke to them, and he warned them through the prophets. And finally, he sent them a dramatic wake-up call. He allowed foreign nations to come and conquer them and take them captive. In verse 2, we read about King Jehoiachin at this time. Now, that's not to be confused with King Jehoiakim, who we've been talking about for the last several weeks. See, Babylon, here's what you need to know about Babylon attacking Jerusalem. We've talked about this a little bit in the past week, so I don't want to repeat a lot of stuff. But here's what happened. Babylon attacked Jerusalem three times total. The first attack was the one we read about last week when we studied the book of Daniel. That happened in 605 BC. That's when Daniel was taken into exile in the first attack on Babylon, or from Babylon on Jerusalem. And that was under Jehoiakim. Now here, this second attack took place in 597 BC under King Jehoiachin. Sounds similar, but it's different. And, And at that time, a great many people were captured by the Babylonians, taken from Jerusalem and Judah to Babylon, including this man, Ezekiel. That's when he was taken away. And then there was a third and final attack, which took place in 587 B.C. This is all very well documented in the Babylonian history and in the Jewish history. Jerusalem at that time, in that final attack, was destroyed. The king at that time was a guy named Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. And the temple was destroyed. Everyone who was left in Jerusalem was taken into exile in Babylon. And so what we see here is that Ezekiel... Five years after arriving in Babylon as an exile, five years now he's been a captive. And it's five years into his exile that God calls him into ministry as a prophet. Ezekiel's ministry began five years into the exile he was a man in exile himself he was a captive ministering to other captives other exiles he was a hurting man called the minister to hurting people I'll give you a few things that Ezekiel lost number one Ezekiel lost his home number two Ezekiel lost his dream and thirdly Ezekiel lost his wife did you know that Ezekiel lost his home Now, like all of the exiles, Ezekiel was taken captive. He was forced to walk 1,700 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. He had to leave behind his extended family, everyone that he knew back home, everything that he knew back home. Many of the exiles were made into slaves. Others of them were kept in prison. Still others of them were allowed to live in homes, but the homes that they lived in were basically what we would call slums and shanty towns. They didn't have resources. Next, Ezekiel lost his dream. You know, Ezekiel, having been trained and prepared his whole life to serve as a priest, which was a great privilege, it would never happen for him. He would never get to serve as a priest. He never got to fulfill that dream. Maybe there are some of you who can relate to that. Maybe you've had a dream at some point in your life that has died. It's not going to happen, and there's a sense of grief that comes along with that. That's what happened to Ezekiel. He lost his dream, and finally, Ezekiel lost his wife. In chapter 24, we read about how Ezekiel's wife, during the exile, passed away. Ezekiel experienced a lot of tragedy in his life, a lot of loss, and the question is this. Where did Ezekiel find the strength to persevere in the face of hardship? Where did Ezekiel find the motivation to keep going and to fulfill God's purpose for his life? And where can we find those same things ourselves? Well, the first thing we see here is that Ezekiel got a glimpse of God's glory, a glimpse of God's glory. Chapter 1, verse 4. Ezekiel has a vision in which he sees a glimpse of God's glory. It's a notoriously strange vision, right? Like, my wife was like, I've been waiting for this sermon because I've been waiting like 20 years for somebody to explain this to me because it's so weird. All right, well, here we go. Before Ezekiel speaks God's word to others, he needs to get a glimpse of God's glory. It says in verse 4, "'I looked, and behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness in it, and fire flashing forth continually.'" And in the midst of the fire, it was as if gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had human likeness, but each had four faces, and each had four wings. Verse 10, and the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four uh, had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Over the centuries, many artists have tried to attempt to draw this out. You can imagine how difficult it might be. Let me kind of break it down for you, okay? First of all, there's this stormy cloud with lightning inside of it. Now remember, when God appeared to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, where he gave them the law and the Ten Commandments, It was there on Mount Sinai. He appeared to them in the form of a stormy cloud that sat on top of the mountain and it had continuous lightning in it and God called Moses to come up into the lightning and receive the law and the 10 commandments. And Ezekiel certainly would have made this connection here between the stormy cloud full of lightning and God's presence on Mount Sinai. He understood this represents God's presence and God's glory. The next thing we see, There are these four living creatures. These living creatures with four faces. And by the way, these guys appear again in the book of Revelation, in chapter four of Revelation, where John the Revelator has this vision of heaven and they're in heaven around the throne of God. He sees these same four living creatures with these four faces around the throne of God. So the question is, what's up with these four faces? Like, what's this all about? Throughout history, all the way back to what we call the patristic period meaning the early church fathers in the couple hundred years right after jesus christians have read this and revelation and they have believed that these four faces on the cherubim what they speak of are different aspects of god's glory different aspects of god's glory and here's here's kind of how they break it down it would say the lion is a reference to god's majesty The ox is a reflection of how God uses his power to serve us. The eagle speaks of God's transcendence, how he's high above us. And the man. Well, see, that's where the Jewish people had a little bit of difficulty in understanding. Their general go-to explanation was this. They would say, this represents that God is a creator and that the pinnacle of God's creation is humanity. But when Christians read this, they said, No, we know exactly what that means. We recognize something there that is key to what it means to believe in Jesus. See, this is an aspect of God's glory. That God, in his greatest act of glory, humbled himself and became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. He became a man so that as a man he might save us. He took on human flesh so that we might see and understand the word of God to us. He became a man in order to fulfill all of God's requirements on our behalf and to die a sacrificial death in our place and to defeat death and rise again for our sakes. In the Gospel of John, John says this, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's right side has made him known. Now, who is at the Father's right side? That's Jesus. So the only God who is at the Father's right side, has made him known. What that verse is saying is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God has shown us his glory in a way that we can see and comprehend. In Jesus, we see God's attributes embodied. We see God's love, God's grace in action, right? We see God, we see his glory embodied and lived out. See, these living creatures with these four faces Christians have identified that these actually reflect different aspects of who Jesus was in his life and in his ministry. The lion, he's called in the Bible, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one true king who will live and reign forever and ever. The ox, Jesus was also called, and in the Old Testament, he's foreshadowed in the form of the suffering servant, The one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Next, the man, right? Jesus was fully God and yet fully man. He became one of us. He was tempted as we are tempted and yet without sin. As a man, he was dependent on the Father and he was led by the Spirit just as we are. Right? As a man, he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died in order to redeem us. And finally, the eagle, he's transcendent, he's holy, he's high above, he is very God of very God. And here's what, what's really interesting, check this out. Have you ever wondered why there are four gospels? I mean, of every other story in the Bible, there's really only one story, right? But when it comes to Jesus, there are four Four different versions of the same story written by four different people. Now, why not just combine those four versions? And instead of having four Gospels, we could just have the Gospel. Why not do that? Actually, people have attempted to do that throughout history. Now, the reason is because each of these four Gospels presents Jesus from a slightly different angle. It presents Jesus with a slightly different emphasis, and they highlight different aspects of who he was. Throughout Christian history, going back to the early church fathers again, this is not something new, right? This is something that Christians have believed for a very long time. Christians have seen a correlation between the four different gospels and their different emphases and these four faces of the living creatures in Ezekiel and Revelation. Let me just run you through it real quick. Matthew emphasizes Jesus as king. There we have the face of the lion, right? Jesus as king. That's Matthew's emphasis. Mark emphasizes Jesus as the suffering servant. There's that ox. And then Luke emphasizes Jesus' humanity. Luke shows Jesus praying more, being dependent on the Father as a human, a real man. And John goes the opposite direction. He emphasizes Jesus' deity. He wants us to know that Jesus is God, that he is transcendent, the eagle. See, here's the deal. No one of those faces on its own can sufficiently sum up who Jesus is and how he manifests God's glory to us. All these four faces of Jesus, they're all four needed for us to understand and appreciate who he was. But there's one more aspect of this vision that's really interesting. Look at it from verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, Now I looked at the creatures, and I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. Verse 17, and the four had the same likeness. They appeared and were constructed as if they were a wheel within a wheel, and they went in and any of their four directions. They turned as they went, and their rims were tall and awesome. That reminds me of like when I was in high school, I got my first car. And I I saved up my money to buy some rims, put some rims on my car. And what kind of rims did I want? Rims that were tall and awesome. I didn't even know. It's like totally in the Bible. Uh, I wish somebody would have told me. But he says the rims were tall and awesome on these wheels. And they were full of eyes. And then the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirits went, they went. And the wheels rose among them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Super weird, right? But here's the deal. Why do they have wheels? What's the deal with the wheels? The point of these wheels is to communicate something to Ezekiel. That part of God's glory is that God is not a God who is static. He is not a God who is tied to or limited to one physical location. Just put it simply, he's a God with wheels on him, right? His glory has wheels, it travels, it goes around. Now, why is that important for Ezekiel to know? Because remember, Ezekiel and the other exiles are 1,700 miles away from the temple. For the Jewish people, the temple was the place where God's glory dwelt. And God is telling Ezekiel here, Ezekiel, my glory has wheels on it, bro. Like, in other words, I'm not tied to the temple I can rise, I can go. And if you're in, you're in uh, Babylon, then I'll be in Babylon. My glory will go with you. It's not tied to the temple. You're not cut off from my glory. My glory will go to where you are. See, the point of this vision, uh, the two aspects, right? The cloud, the stormy cloud with all the lightning that reminds us of God's presence on Mount Sinai. God is saying, hey, just as I was with you on Mount Sinai, I am with you in Babylon. My glory has wheels on it. It's able to go with you. And wherever you are, I will be there. and My glory will be with you. In other words, God is saying, I have not abandoned you. I have not given up on you. And I am committed to working even this exile for your good. Because, right, they're his people. He loves them. He's not going to give up on them. He's committed to them. And let me tell you this. Just like Ezekiel, in order for us to find the strength that we need, in order for you to find the motivation that you need to fulfill God's purpose for your life and go on even in the face of hardship, you need to get a glimpse of God's glory. And friends, let me tell you this, the place where you get the clearest glimpse of God's glory, you know where that is? It's in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where we get the clearest glimpse of God's glory. When you look at Jesus and you see God's kindness and God's love embodied and lived out in his saving actions for you on the cross and in his resurrection. That is what gives you the strength to keep going in the face of hardship. That is what gives you the motivation to continue on to fulfill the purpose that God has put on your life. That's why the writer to the Hebrews, he says this, we run this race that is set before us. He compares life to a race that is set before us. And he says, and we look to Jesus for our strength and motivation. If you've ever run a race, you know what happens. You start off going all fast and stuff, feeling great. And pretty soon, you start to get worn out. You start to get tired. Sometimes you want to give up. In races I've run, I've literally seen people just give up and walk off the track. And so the picture is this you're running a race, you're tired, you're hurting, you're struggling to find the motivation and the strength to keep going. Where do you find that? What do you look to? The writer says this, here's what you do. You look to Jesus. At those times when you're struggling to find the strength and the motivation, you look to Jesus By looking at the glory of God lived out by Jesus Christ in what he did for you in his life, death, and resurrection, that is what will give you the strength to keep going and the motivation to fulfill his purposes for your life because everything he did, he did to save you so that this life isn't it. I gotta tell you this, guys. For those people in exile, this wasn't their best life now and it wasn't gonna get any better by the time they died. They needed a hope that was beyond this life. And they needed motivation to keep going and fulfill God's purpose in this life because they needed to know that this life isn't it. And I hope that you know that as well. See, if this life is all we hope in, then we are to be pitied above all people. Now let's get into the next part because this is important too. A warning of what's at stake. This is the next thing. that gave them the strength to go on and the motivation to keep going. At the end of chapter one, Ezekiel says this, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. This happens several times in the book. Ezekiel keeps getting these visions of God's glory and he keeps falling on his face. But there's another thing that happens over and over too. It says that God speaks to him and this voice speaks to him. And the voice says, all right, you're on your face. That's good, now stand up. See, that's this continual falling on your face in reverence and God calling us, okay, now stand up, get on your feet. And it says, the spirit of the Lord lifted me onto my feet. And he says this, yeah, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And then God speaks to him. He says, Ezekiel, I'm sending you out. You will be my messenger to my rebellious people. Your job is to call them to repentance, to call them to forsake their sins and receive mercy and grace, because if they do, there's hope. And many of these people, God tells them ahead of time, a lot of these people are not going to listen to you. You're going to call them to repentance, and they're going to ignore you. They're not going to hear what you, want, what you have to say. They aren't going to listen to it, and they're not going to repent. But he says, I want you to go, and I want you to preach to them anyway. And God tells Ezekiel there, he tells him something really interesting in chapter three, starting in verse 16. He tells him, Ezekiel, here's why this matters. Here's why this is important. Because people's souls are at stake here, Ezekiel. And God tells him in in chapter three, verses 18 through 21, he says, look, if you preach this message and people ignore it and they perish in their sins, well, that's between them and me. But on the other hand, Ezekiel, If I give you this message and you fail to preach it to the people, you don't do it because you're worried, you know, that they're not going to listen or maybe they'll persecute you. He says, if you don't preach this message and the people perish in their sins and you didn't warn them, you didn't call them to repentance, he says, well, then Ezekiel, I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to count their blood on your hands. Now, that's a very strong message, but I think it's a really important message for us to hear as well today. Just this past week, a study was released which showed that 50% of Christians 35 and under in this poll believe that it is wrong to evangelize other people. Uh, You know, in other words, it's wrong to proselytize. It's wrong to try to persuade other people to believe what you believe and become a Christian. And their thought is this, that rather, you know, you do your thing, let other people do their thing. If you want to be a Christian, that's all well and good, but you don't have to go around trying to convert everybody. See, the only problem with that, though, is that it's completely antithetical to what we believe as Christians. It's completely antithetical to what Jesus said and actually what Jesus did. See, what Christianity teaches is that Jesus is the one and only way to the Father, That there's only one name under heaven which has been given by which we can be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. In fact, the Bible says, if there were another way, then Jesus' death was totally in vain. It was totally meaningless. By the way, that word saved, right? When it talks, the Bible says so much about salvation, God coming to save people. Well, it implies that there's something to be saved from. Did you know that Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven? Now, you might be surprised to hear that because you say, well, that's weird because I thought Jesus was all about love and stuff. Why would he talk about hell? Well, that's precisely why he talked about hell. Because he actually loved people enough to tell them and to warn them and to really tell them what's at stake here. He didn't want people to go to hell He wanted them to realize what was at stake, the gravity of the situation so that they would put their faith and trust in Him so they would be saved and not perish. That's what the most famous Bible verse in the world says, right? That God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. See, in Ezekiel chapter 18 and then again in Ezekiel chapter 33, which we read at the beginning of service here, in both those passages, God bears his heart to his people and he says to Ezekiel, say to the people, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I want that the de- the wicked would turn from their ways and live, turn back, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? God is telling Ezekiel, I want you to go and I want you to plead with these people on my behalf that they repent of their sins and receive my mercy. Paul the Apostle said a similar thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, where he said, we are God's ambassadors, and it is as if God is making his plea through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, that's what evangelism is about. It's about telling people this good news of what God has done, so that we can be saved and reconciled to him. I, I ran across a really interesting uh, interview this week. It was with a guy named Penn Gillette. Does anybody know who Penn Gillette is? He's uh, half of the entertaining group Penn and Teller, right? Penn and Teller, they performed in Las Vegas for a long time, and they've had, you know, specials on TV, and they're, they're quite well known. Now, uh, Gillette Penn is not just a performer and a comedian and a mu- magician, he's also an avowed atheist and a very, uh, very adamant and outspoken atheist. But this, interesting, this interview was interesting. He was talking to somebody, I think it was a radio interview, and he was talking about religion and specifically he was talking about proselytizing this idea that Christians are out there trying to convert people to their beliefs. And here's what Penn Gillette said, keep in mind, he's not a Christian. Here's what he said. He said, I've always said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life, and you think it's really not worth it to tell them this because it would be socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? He makes a really good point, right? Like, if we as Christians actually believe that what the Bible says is true— And we believe that we have the words of eternal life in the scriptures. How could we keep that to ourselves? Right? Like if you had the cure for cancer, would you just keep that to yourself? Of course not. But how much more is at stake in this case? There are people's souls at stake. There's eternity at stake. Jesus said, what does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? See, of, the, of all the things that kept Ezekiel motivated to fulfill God's calling and purpose on his life, even in spite of his difficulties, this was one of them, the reminder of what is at stake when it comes to this mission, the mission of God. People's souls are at stake, eternity is at stake. And for us too, guys, the mission is crucial. You know, that's what we're about here at Whitefields. We're about the gospel, mission, and community. The mission is crucial, and it's urgent Because, look, guys, it's not just about us knowing God and going to heaven, right? That's where it starts, but it's not just about us knowing God and going to heaven. There are a whole lot of other people out there, and they need to know God, and they need to go to heaven, too. And what we want to do is we want to help them know about this forgiveness and this freedom and this hope that is available in the gospel. We can't keep that to ourselves. There's a lot at stake. And finally, we see this. There's a vision of life out of death, a vision of life out of death. The book of Ezekiel essentially divides into two sections. In the first section, which is about 60% of the book, Ezekiel is called calling the people to repent. He's calling them to repent and turn back to God. But in the second section, Ezekiel gets a vision of the future in which God will do an amazing work of restoration and he will bring life out of death. This includes a very famous passage, which you may have heard of, in chapter 37. In Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel sees a valley full of dry bones. And God tells Ezekiel to prophesy over the dry bones, and these bones come back to life. And and God tells Ezekiel what this means there in chapter 37. He says that these bones represent the whole nation of Israel. Now, as we've been talking about through the prophets, you remember the nation of Israel has been divided for hundreds of years into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. They've been a divided nation who kind of like civil war, like they hated each other. But here's what God is telling Ezekiel, that when the exile is over, God is going to revive the nation of Israel and the two kingdoms will be reunited and they will resettle the land of Israel. Now, this prophecy was fulfilled about 50 years after Ezekiel spoke these words. We're going to talk about that next week, about what happened after the exile and how God brought them back to Jerusalem. But then Ezekiel starts talking about something which has not yet happened, even in our day. Right? He starts talking about things that will happen after that. In chapter 40, he begins to describe this vision of the new temple that will be built. And he gives the dimensions in very specific dimensions. Now, by this time, remember, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. But God gave him a vision that there would be a new temple that would be built in Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting is this temple that Ezekiel describes has never been built even to this day. The people did, by the way, eventually return to Jerusalem. We'll talk about that next week. And they did rebuild the temple. But the temple that they built did not match the description of Ezekiel's temple here in these verses in in two really important ways. Number one, the the rebuilt temple was much smaller than the one that Ezekiel describes. But the most important difference is found in Ezekiel chapter 47. In Ezekiel chapter 47, Ezekiel prophesies, That when this happens, there will be a river which will flow from Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem sits on top of a mountain. There are no rivers in Jerusalem. There are rivers in the valley, but not on the mountain. The city is located on top of a hill, right? And so Ezekiel says, the source of this river will begin from underneath the temple. And he describes how this river will start from under the temple... And it will begin as a trickle, and as it gains momentum, it will become a river which is deep enough to swim in. And here's the part that I find most interesting. In chapter 47, verse 7, it says that along the banks of this river, there will be abundant life. Now remember, Judah is a desert, right? And so it's saying that the desert will come to life, and it says there will be abundance of trees. And in verse 8, here's the craziest part of the whole thing. He says this river will flow from Jerusalem, And it will flow into the Dead Sea, and the waters of this river will cause the Dead Sea to come back to life. It says that in that time, there will be fish in the Dead Sea, and people will cast their nets and they will fish in the Dead Sea. That is something which, by the way, has never happened in recorded history. Now, Again, there's nothing living in the Dead Sea. It is literally the most highly toxic lake, natural lake on earth. Nothing survives in those waters. In fact, if you ingest even just a little bit of the water, it's enough to make you sick and even kill you. But Ezekiel says that one day, a river of living water will flow out of Jerusalem from under the temple where God's glory will reside, and that water will heal the Dead Sea, and it will bring that dead place back to life. Later on, after Ezekiel, God raised up another prophet named Zechariah. And Zechariah describes many of the same things. In Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah says that when the Messiah returns, he will come to Jerusalem. And when he does, there will be a great earthquake. And Jerusalem, by the way, does sit on a fault line. Jerusalem also has aquifers underneath it. That's why there are wells. That's why they're able to live on top of that mountain, because there are wells, because there are aquifers under the city. And Zechariah says in chapter 14, verse eight, he says, on that day, living water shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of it to the eastern side and to the sea and half of it to the western sea. The eastern sea is the Dead Sea. The western sea is the Mediterranean Sea. And he says it shall continue in summer as in winter. So what he's describing is that when Jesus returns, a river will flow in Jerusalem, a river of living water, which will bring life out of death. In Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, it tells us that after Jesus will defeat Satan and judge the nations, there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and the new Jerusalem will descend from heaven. And here's what it says about the new Jerusalem. It says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb through the middle of the street of that city on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. This vision Ezekiel had was about how one day God is going to make everything new. That in that day, death will be no more. In that day, death will be overcome by life. And let me tell you this, for Ezekiel, as a person who had lost his wife, who had lost so many things, this promise would be very meaningful. For any of you who've ever loved someone or loved someone currently, this is a very meaningful promise because it means that one day, death will no longer haunt us. Death will no longer hang over our lives like a, like a cloud that comes after us and haunts us. Where did Ezekiel get the strength to keep going in the face of personal tragedy? Where do you find the motivation to live out God's purpose for his life? It was through this vision that God gave him of life out of death, of what will be and what is to come. How will God do it? Well, Ezekiel didn't know for sure, but we do know, right? Because we have more information. We know that Jesus died in our place and he rose again on the third day. And he said, the Bible says that he rose as the first fruits of those who would rise from the dead. What that means is that Jesus' resurrection was the proof that you and me who have our faith in Jesus will be resurrected to eternal life because of what Jesus did for us. That's an incredible hope. And it is this hope of life out of death, this promise of what is to come, that gives us the strength to keep going, even in the face of hardship. It gives us the motivation to not just live for ourselves, but to live for God's mission and to fulfill his purpose for our lives because we know that our best life is the one that is yet to come. And I'll just conclude by saying this. There was a time when Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he stood in that place where one day he will stand again. It was during a big festival. The city was packed. It tells us there in John chapter seven, verse 37, that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart will flow, what, rivers of living water. Guys, isn't that what we've been talking about? This image Ezekiel had of the river of living water flowing in Jerusalem. Jesus is referring to that. And he's saying that river of living water that brings life out of death That can not only be something that you experience in the future, that can be something that is inside of you. You can experience that in your life. You can have this river of living water inside of you. Where there has been death, God will bring about life. Where you felt dead inside, where there's been corruption and sin, God will bring about life. This living water is so powerful, it can make the dead sea come to life. And that living water can be inside of you. In fact, it can be so much that it will overflow out of you and spill out onto other people around you. How do you get that? Well, Jesus says right here, whoever believes in me. Friends, I'll just end with that question. Do you believe in him today? To believe in him doesn't just mean to believe that he existed. Doesn't just mean to believe that what the Bible said was true. It means personally to trust in, to cling to, and to rely on who Jesus was, and what he did for you to save you. Guys, this is really good news. That's why it's called the gospel. This is the news that can motivate you to keep going, even in the face of hardship. This is the motivation to keep going, to fulfill God's purpose for your life, rather than to live for yourself. This is the gospel. It's good news, am I right? Lord, thank you for this good news of the gospel. And Lord, we wanna do that today whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the 5,000th time, Lord. We wanna rely on you and cling to you and trust in you in every area of our lives. So Lord, we do that now. We look to you and we ask, Lord, we believe, fill us with that river of living water that brings life where there has been death. And Lord, may it overflow out of our lives and touch other people as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.